0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The Automation Rooves, Part 1. We'll open with Powerhouse, performed here by Don Byron off of Bug Music from 1996. Composed by Raymond Scott in 1937, Powerhouse was featured in over 40 Warner Brothers cartoons, and perhaps best known for its use in the 1946 Looney Tunes cartoon, Baby Bottleneck, which stars Daffy Duck and Porky Pig. 1946 is also the year the word automation is said to have been coined as workers in the Ford Motor Company made increasing use of a mechanized production line. Since then, scholars, journalists, and economists alike have projected the widespread and totalizing adoption of automation technologies across all sectors of the economy. For nearly half a century, we've been bombarded with images of the future of automation. The lights out factories that manufacture goods without a hand from humans, robots that care for the elderly. These projections of the future of automation have not turned out to be as widespread as anticipated. Why is this? We're in a crisis of stagnation. It can be seen in GDP growth, in labor productivity gains, in wage stagnation, in the rate of business investment since the turn of the century. Automation isn't cheap, and businesses want to see sustained growth before spending money on fixed capital expenditures. It's not automation, then, that defines our era. It's economic stagnation. Corporations have responded to this crisis through a process called cross-subsidization. Corporations tend toward market monopolies, and in doing so, they generate enough wealth to subsidize less lucrative parts of their business model. Facebook is free, but it is subsidized with advertisements. We can purchase goods from Amazon with a relatively small profit margin for the corporation itself, and yet the purchasing platform is subsidized by their web services platform. The economic stagnation to which companies are responding has generated a novel arrangement of class conflict in the service sector. Today, we're told that as many as 85% of U.S. workers labor in the service sector. If we usually think of commodities as distinct objects that are produced and then sold, the service sector complicates this equation as it's characterized by the simultaneous production and consumption of commodities. When you think of service work, think of the stylist to cut your hair, elementary school teachers, bus drivers, home care workers. In his book, Smart Machines and Service Work, Automation in an Age of Stagnation, published by Reaction Books, Jason Smith argues against the claim that we are in an age of automation. We are, he argues, in a crisis of stagnation that fundamentally shapes the nature of class conflict. Within the constraints of service work and stagnation, people across the world are organizing around their class interests. Lessons from the 2018 West Virginia teacher strike, the Gilets jean movement in France, and graduate workers' movements give us insight into what it means to get organized in our current moment. And now, The Automation Ruse, Part 1, on Interchange, on WFHB.
1: One of the things that you're contending with in this book is the question of productivity. And when we talk about productivity, many of us assume, of course, that automation is making every sector more productive. Um, But not only is productivity not really increasing, you argue, but some jobs are more and less vulnerable to automation than others. Can you say a bit more about trends in productivity in the U.S., um, how they're measured and what industries are proving to be more vulnerable to automation?
2: One of the things that I wanted to grapple with in writing the book to begin with was the kind of divergence or, or seeming kind of disconnection between the claims that were being made about automation and the kind of imminent automation of not simply this or that sector, particularly the more technologically progressive sectors like like manufacturing and industry more broadly understood, but also the service sector. Right? That's the real claim that's being made. Something like 85%, 80 to 85% of American workers. Are working in what's, what are classified as service sector positions, but the claim is basically that that there's this there are these kind of new technologies that have been developed. Um, they've been kind of in the works maybe since 1970, maybe since the 90s, maybe in the last whatever 10 years, and that in the very very near future, in fact maybe already, we are facing a kind of uh, imminent automation of. Any number of, of sectors, including those that are seemingly very, very hard to automate, like retail, um, restaurants, even things like childcare and, and lots of healthcare jobs and so on and so forth. So that's the basic claim that seems to be made by a lot of uh, writers about automation, particularly in the last, let's say, the last eight years. And there's also a lot of writers on the left. It's not just business school types and Silicon Valley types that are making these kind of claims. There are a lot of people on the left. I think of, for example, Peter Fraze's book, Four Futures, which is a very interesting book, I should say. Um, but it sort of starts out from the assumption that such a scenario, a kind of total automation of the labor force, or a kind of radical transformation of the labor force and the labor market, as a result of the automation of service jobs in particular, will propose a set of scenarios that he can he can sort of uh, explore in kind of very interesting ways. I think also someone like Paul Mason, his book on post-capitalism, also makes a lot of claims about the potential for kind of a broad. Automation of particularly the service sector. Um, and he sort of makes some arguments about why that potential is there, but yet hasn't yet been fully realized. And they uh, and I sort of touch on those a little bit in the book. And so, um, so that's the kind of basic context in which I'm sort of thinking about the question of labor productivity in particular. And of course, the other thing that I'm trying to reconcile or the thing that I'm trying to reconcile with those claims are the act- is the actual performance of the economy since you know 2008 mm-hmm. since 2000 and maybe even since the 70s right those are the kind of basic timeframes that i'm thinking about and i think what is clear certainly since 2000 is even the most advanced sectors of the economy in the us economy and and in the advanced economies of western europe and north america even the manufacturing sector has seen relatively little to no labor productivity gains
1: one of the things that sort of characterizes the service work industry or, you know, that that sort of realm is that many people are not actively contending with the raw materials, sort of in the Marxist way of uh, transforming the raw materials directly into a commodity, right? Teachers are producing a sort of value that isn't realized directly in the economy, etc. This is one of the things, but not sort of the, you know, it's the sort of necessary but not sufficient part of why you say the so-called service industry right. in, in some regard. Can you say a little bit more about the relationship between value production and what service work is?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the no- notion of services is a really old notion. And you find it in Adam Smith, for example. Um, and the idea of a service is simply that the moment of production of a service and the moment of the consumption of a service take place usually simultaneously. In other words, you don't produce a discrete object that can then be taken home, put on a shelf, maybe resold on eBay or what have you, that sort of thing. It's not a material object that can be separated from the body of the producer or the consumer, but instead implies some kind of so-called immaterial form, which is still a commodity, of course. It's sold in the market and exchanged against money and so on and so forth, but they're not material in some kind of obvious way. So that's the basic concept behind a service. You're listening to Interchange on
0: WFHB. Our show is The Automation Ruse, Part 1. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is joined by Jason Smith, author of Smart Machines and Service Work. With 85% of U.S. jobs now classed in the service sector, where concepts like productivity are hard if not impossible to measure, can automation even be a factor when we consider such work? In our current crisis of stagnation, Jason Smith argues that it can't.
2: But one of the obvious problems is that it, it actually groups together totally disparate activities, um, disparate activities, certainly in terms of wages, both the types of concrete labor process um, that's being performed. You know, doing working in an accounting firm, for example, is very different than uh, taking care of elderly people in a nursing home. Uh, and yet they're both characterized as service sector activities. But if you actually think about not productivity measured in just some kind of idea of output in, in monetary terms, um, and instead... Think about value production. Then you have a totally different question, and it's a question that's not necessarily um, reckoned with very often by people talking about these things. But it's also a very, very old classical question that belongs to um, the world of you know Adam Smith and David Ricardo, and of course Marx. And so that's sort of, in some sense, what I try to do in the book. But basically, I start from the idea that there's something called the service sector, and then I progressively try to critically engage the conceptuality that that implies. And I sort of shift away from this division between goods and services or production of goods and production of services to one that kind of emphasizes activities that produce value versus those that don't produce value. If you think about it in those terms, what you see is there are lots of service uh, sector activities that do produce value and lots of them that don't. It makes the, the conceptual coherence of the category of services itself uh, sort of explode in some way.
1: And it seems like one of the things that you're arguing is also that where we think technology and automation are entering the economy, we're actually not seeing much innovation. You sort of say we're seeing businesses finding ways to collect rent from their users and also right. to collect their data. I know, for example, like I, I pay Spotify rent every month to use yeah, their sure. platform. Um, And you refer to these business models as crisis era phenomena, where the two business models are platforms on one hand and these what you call zombie firms on the other. I want to get to zombie firms and platforms in a moment, but can you say a bit about why this rent-seeking business model is such an effective way for corporations to navigate crises or why it's a sort of crisis era phenomenon?
2: One way that that mainstream economists and observers describe it is is a crisis of stagnation. That's a stagnation is understood uh, across the board, right? GDP growth, um, labor productivity gains, wage stagnation, something that's that's a very kind of uh, marked um, phenomenon that everyone can sort of like point to very easily. For me, it's quite important that the, the kind of rate of business investment has really declined pretty radically, actually, especially in the since 2008, but let's say 2000 onward. And all of this describes a kind of context, historical epoch of, of crisis, a kind of sputtering or decline or kind of deterioration. But yeah, so it's this kind of nesting of crises that's really, really what marks 2020, let's say. But yeah, so the, so the crisis I'm talking about is one that has, as I mentioned earlier, kind of different starting points. 2008 is an easy one for us. We've never left that crisis, right? And the kind of effects of that crisis are kind of working themselves through the economy, but also the kind of social fabric more, more broadly. So the idea is that if you, if you're in a situation of no growth in which the economy seems to be caught in a sort of, I don't know, kind of holding pattern or kind of a standstill or it's kind of treading water in some sense, the types of business models that tend to function <laughs> in a kind of, uh, effective way in that kind of environment are not through kind of intercapitalist competition in which each firm is like sort of, finding ways to innovate their labor process, to produce commodities more cheaply, and therefore capture market share, and so on and so forth. But rather, um, the strategy that seems to function most effectively is some kind of rent-seeking model. And particularly with the big tech companies, there's these network effects that are built into their business model, right? And the network effects... What do
1: you call the cross-subsidization?
2: Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So for example, Amazon... The profitable parts of his business, probably in cloud computing, but there are other aspects of its business, the ones that we probably think of commonly as like what Amazon does, delivering things and blah, blah, blah. Those kinds of um, activities of these large tech companies can oftentimes be not profitable at all, like, like money losers, right? But they're subsidized by the pr- profitable parts of the company. And, and they're subsidized precisely because the horizon is a kind of monopoly, producing kind of monopoly conditions and sort of capturing market share. The whole idea is to produce a situation where there's no outside um, in a particular sector. And Amazon, you know, they they started out selling books, right? But then they buy Whole Foods. They've got this cloud computing thing with lots of like government, like defense contracts and so on and so forth. Yeah,
1: police departments across the country use... Use Amazon's web services.
2: Right, exactly. The, this kind of uh, ambition to sort of be a kind of like totalizing sort of uh, corporation. Journalist in jail, covering the scenes, the profit calls
3: rise for the corporate machine.
0: It's time for a break. This is The 99 from Sunbolt's 2019 release, Union. More on the false promise and false warning of automation taking over the workplace. When interchange returns on WFHB, ninety nine percent, ninety
3: nine percent, it's a trickle down world like you're stuck in cement. Balancing's over ninety nine. Welcome back
0: to Interchange. Our show is The Automation Ruse, Part 1. Brady Heberlin talks with Jason Smith about the state of the workplace, labor organizing, and automation. In this segment, we look at the economic deadweight of so-called zombie firms propped up by cheap credit and then turn to the declining power of the labor movement in the face of low productivity.
3: 99%, 99%, it's a trickle-down world like you're stuck in cement. 99%,
1: 99% One of the arguments about zombie firms is that they are surviving through this sort of really cheap credit and endless, sort of endless financing. And in your book, you say um, the coming depression will more likely than not have its origins in this enormous pile of junk financing. So much dry tender awaiting its spark. So I wanted to ask you, what makes that financing so volatile? Why Why can we sort of like see a depression coming just from the financing to zombie firms,
2: unlike let's say a kind of uh, massive economic crisis, which begins in the, in the mass default on on household debt, right, um, mortgage debt, that um, like two thousand eight, that maybe the we need to look at something like corporate debt, for example, in uh, for the next kind of massive two thousand eight style crisis. So, on some level, like if maybe. Uh, certain kinds of stopgap measures have been introduced to um, deal with that particular sector, of the financial system. Maybe, in fact, it will be um, these zombie companies. The key for me was, was that on some level, you know, we have these superstar firms, right? There's like five or six of them that are driving the uh, these kind of massive uh, stock market bubbles. But then you have this kind of like mass, these legions of, of zombie companies that are that are basically barely treading water, right? And in some sense, doing so only because of a kind of kink, a kind of very artificial kink within the, the kind of financial sector. As I say, this kind of 20 years of, of basically you know, free money. But it's not only the US, but but for example, in um, Japan, for sure. But also in Europe, you see this kind of massive explosion of corporate debt. And a lot of it is, is companies that in some sense can only survive by refinancing Existing debt and doing it because uh, and they're able to do it because credit's so cheap, right? So if there's some kind of adjustment in the the returns that people uh, who are you know lending these companies money, uh, then in fact that will produce some kind of potentially catastrophic sort of shakeout in the in the corporate sector.
1: Can you say a little bit more about the cheap credit and and free money? Why? How is that related to the the crisis era that we're in, especially for people who are not? Deepen economics, deepen that world why why is that cheap credit available?
2: I think it's really after 2001 um, particularly after the attacks in New York uh, in, in 9/11. I can't remember exactly the, the sequence but basically for about 20 years you have this uh, period in which interest rates are incredibly low. I mean oftentimes approaching zero, the basic idea, of course, is that um, if you uh, make money available to businesses and people that are doing productive things in the economy, supposedly they'll be more willing to take on debt to finance expansion of their operations, like hiring more workers or buying some more plants or whatever it is they're doing. But of course, what happened instead is that it, since there's no viable scenario in which Productive investment is going to produce returns that uh, will lead to some kind of rejuvenation or kind of reinvigoration of the economy. All that free credit, or a lot of that free credit, at least, or that cheap money went into things like well, they went into speculative types of scenarios. And so, for example, stock buybacks.
1: This is in contrast to it going into fixed capital, which is one of the things, right? That
2: exactly means,
1: that there's this tendency to um, push businesses deeper into the financial sector where money is generated where commodities aren't being produced necessarily. And this is the buyback process rather than investments in automation related technologies that would be part of a corporation's fixed capital.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Right. The idea is that, you know, um, a lot of the money that, that became sort of like this sort of flooded into uh, the financial sector was used for things like real estate and even, you know, urban real estate. That's why you have these massive real estate bubbles. Um, and oftentimes it's not even financing new construction, it's, it's financing uh, the purchase of existing you know, structures. That's, that's a kind of um, intuitively obvious kind of speculative, non-productive type of activity.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Automation Ruse, Part 1. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is joined by Jason Smith, author of Smart Machines and Service Work. With 85% of U.S. jobs now classed in the service sector, where concepts like productivity are hard if not impossible to measure, can automation even be a factor when we consider such work? In our current crisis of stagnation, Jason Smith argues that it can't.
1: You write that workers um, are only really able to increase their wages or their labor share value when productivity increases. For anyone thinking through possibilities of anti capitalist labor organizing, that right. is sort of, uh, that's very haunting. That's, a, that's very right. much a specter that sort of forecloses many different, uh, avenues of organizing. Isn't it possible for workers to just demand a greater share of the, um, value they're producing and force capitalists to take less profit from it or, Um, why, why is their success so, so driven by productivity? I just want to dig into that a little bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I think the historical record is that, you know, the mainstream economists talk about this labor share of income, right? Like, um, so this is capital labor share of, of income and that what matters is the actual distribution of shares of income. And so that you have, that if you have no labor productivity growth, any, Gains in labor share of income is going to come at the expense of capital, right? So the idea is that, um, there's a kind of frontal confrontation between two subjects, if you like, in which each is going to go to war to protect its share of the, of the total income produced by, uh, let's say by the economy as a whole. And then, of course, in individual sectors, right? Whereas if you have labor productivity gains, you just share the, uh, the gains, right? And so that the labor share of income, uh, could actually in absolute terms increase But in relative terms, stay the same relative to capital, right? And so if there's no labor productivity gains, any wage increases that labor wants to uh, sort of win through struggle is going to be contested tooth and nail. The key to this idea for me is is looking at the kind of post-war sort of, especially in places like France and Italy, uh, where you have these kind of very um, clear, kind of nationally negotiated and state-mediated contracts between, between capital and labor, In which wage gains were very, very clearly tied to productivity gains. And the question is like, why, why was that the case? Right. Well, I mean, it's precisely the the argument that I'm trying to make that on some level, capital will draw the line at the, at a, a kind of diminished share of total income. It won't, it's not a question of the absolute income. It's, there's no problem with wage gains if you're producing more and more per unit of labor.
1: We're seeing wages flatline in uh, proportion to the way that productivity is flatlining or just barely increasing.
2: Yeah, that's and that's the argument I try to make in the book. Right. It's, is that like if we look at wage stagnation, we have to figure out, like, is it simply a war that's been, let's say, a Ra- beginning in the Reagan era, a kind of war on unions, which diminishes the capacity for workers to uh, somehow rest uh, wage gains from their employers? Or is there some other deeper kind of more infrastructural problem at stake that makes it such that it being definitely the case that there's been a war against uh, certainly the labor movement? Um, there's also been some kind of deeper, in my sense, some kind of deeper deterioration of the conditions that made possible the kind of victories of the labor movement in the post-war period. On some level, it it forces one to reckon with the history of the labor movement itself and the kind of direction of the labor movement. And when we say, well, the labor movement is is, uh, in decline or maybe even dead, you could say, um, if you look at it from a certain perspective, the question is, why is that? Is it because people didn't have the capacity to organize or didn't have the will to organize? Maybe on some level. And I talk a little bit about that question of the material capacity for organization in the latter part of the book. But I think that there's... it's important to step back and say, well, it might not simply be a question of people not organizing intensely enough uh, or with enough uh, strategic vision or what have you. And I should say all this as, as when I speak this way, I'm speaking at a very abstract level because I clearly um, in certain sectors and certain lines of work, people have been very successful in organizing workplaces that weren't organized before
1: teaching and education.
2: Yeah, in particular. Yeah, right. Especially in, in higher, edu- higher education, right? Like grad students organizing. It's been a real success over the past, I don't know, let's say since the 90s, at least is what I would say, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not an expert. When you talk about public school teachers, those are long standing kind of, you know, public sector uh, sort of organizations, which have always been strong, but they've sh- they've, they've sort of expressed a kind of new muscle, but they flexed a new muscle, it seems like in the past 10 years in ways that might not have been Expected if you looked at the it's like the most uh, stagnant sector of the economy in some, on some level, right? I mean, um, the situation that teachers find themselves in at a technological level hasn't changed dramatically in a long time, um, and despite some of the fantasies that people might have about um, the role that even Zoom, let's like, say now, might have in the future um, in terms of teaching, it's something that uh, I wanted to know was an important example in terms of thinking about what's actually happening versus some of the some of the claims that people like, for example, Kim Moody make about the logistics sector and so on and so forth.
3: Upstate versus downstate City versus county rural versus urban Red versus the blue He said national service Keep the Union together. It's time
0: for another break. This is the title track off of Sunbolt's 2019 release, Union. In the next segment, we'll turn to recent labor protests in France, highlighting the Yellow Vests movement and how they help us understand U.S. labor weakness. Stay with
3: us building blocks of a nation, he said national service will keep the union together, he said national service will keep the union together. Party system, donkey and the Welcome
0: back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of The Automation Ruse, episode producer Brady Heberlin speaks with author Jason Smith about how labor protests in France, like the gilets jaunes or yellow Vest movement, still have power in a way that unions no longer do in the United States. But there is a positive example in public sector wildcat strikes. He said,
3: national service we we'll keep the union together.
1: On one hand, teaching is part of this public sector where um, people who are working in education are not necessarily atomized from each other, etc. But one of the things that you're proposing is that we're seeing or we're entering this moment of the servant economy, right. um, and that that is sort of uniquely atomizing. And so, of course, that makes me you know, freak out a little bit and just think, oh, no, like we'll never see meaningful labor organizing. Yeah. People are atomized. But you um, are really taking lessons from the Gilets Jean movement in France. Can you say just a brief thing for people who might not be sure of what the gilet Jean movement was? Can you say uh, a little bit about what was different about that than people who are coming out of the public sector, for example?
2: That movement in France, the kind of yellow uh, vests, I guess is the translation, um, is a complicated and to some extent unprecedented movement in the context of the French labor movement. And what's most interesting about it to me is that, you know, and I spent some time in France and I have some sense of the French situation more broad, kind of social and, and uh political situation, um, is that what you see classically in France is, is big public sector unions in particular industries, like the railroads, um, uh, the nuclear sector, we can, France is a massive nuclear sector. It's like 70% of the electricity is produced in the nuclear sector. Um, and other sort of strategic, uh, sectors, which are tend to be dominated by, uh, the CGT, which is like the, the CGT, the, um, the kind of big, formerly sort of communist—just
1: basically the workers, the workers' union.
2: Right. Exactly, and it had historic roots with the with the uh, with the communist party, uh, the PCF. And it's a very complicated history, which is very fascinating, in fact, um, for me. Um, but nevertheless, they tend to be one of the more militant unions. There's another one called Sud, um, Sud, as well. Um, but they tend to be uh, militant. They're able to organize massive demonstrations in Paris and large cities. Um, They are able, if they need to, to shut down very key sectors of the economy, particularly the uh, energy sector, uh, gas and and so on and so forth. Um, And they tend to be the kind of both visible face and the kind of muscle of classical French working class struggle. Right. And within those kind of big demonstrations, there's oftentimes too a kind of autonomous or I don't know, people would call them maybe kind of anarchist uh, dimension as well. That's oftentimes. Uh, a kind of vanguard within these large demonstrations organized by labor unions, but also kind of at war with the labor unions and particularly the labor union stewards. And it's a kind of very classical, I mean, you, you've seen it enough times in France, you're like, wow, I mean, these are massive mobilizations, they're super intense, that a lot of um property damage, you know, and things like that, that, that is relatively rare in the U.S. Yes, until you
1: can see the videos on, you know, of like May Day in Paris, and you have like a black block that is simultaneously at this CGT march, but also in conflict with it.
2: Exactly, exactly. And they're accusing the the CGT's stewards of being in concert with the police. And, you know, the whole thing is so common in, in France. It's a kind of ritual that uh, is both very, very impressive, but also very, very predictable. And so what's fascinating about the Gilets jaunes is they, they tend to be people who are relatively unpoliticized. It tends to be from sectors which are kind of marginal sectors, uh, people working in warehouses or people, delivery drivers, truckers, that sort of thing. People that aren't in these kind of core, like, sort of like, you know, engines of the economy in the way that we think of the energy sector or so on and so forth, railroad sector. And they aren't, they tend not to be organized. Um, you know, in France, has a relatively low, I think it's like 80% of the, the, the labor force is actually unionized, which is like lower than the U.S. I think, and it's very strange to
1: wild. To, we have so few labor unions, here. right?
2: Exactly, I mean, they tend to be you know nurses and teachers, very specific sectors, right? And um, but the French have uh, even lower <laughs> union uh, sort of unionization rate, but but for various reasons that have to do with uh, French labor law, which itself is a result of these class struggles since the '30s. Really, uh, they are very powerful in terms of shaping. Uh, French social dynamics, um, but the gendarmes are, are from a totally different layer of the working population. And what's fascinating about them is that not only are they not politicized, not organized, quote unquote, in a kind of traditional way, they tend to be from kind of the exurban part of large cities. You know, the kind of uh, the kind of what Phil Neal calls the near hinterland. I think he calls it yeah. something like that. And, you know, it's like people working in distribution centers, that sort of thing. And the form of struggle that they developed um, was really fascinating, very split between these kind of inner city demonstrations, which are oftentimes really, like, um, confrontational, you know, like fighting the police. There's one famous one on the Champs-Élysées, which where they were like, destroying everything inside. And it was really like, whoa, like the black bloc wouldn't dream of <laughs> being able to pull off that, you know, like... Um, and yet they're also, you know, organizing these roundabouts, which are these very kind of peculiar um, sort of French, uh, I guess, everywhere in Europe, everywhere the U- but the U.S., they have these roundabouts everywhere. But they're basically these very specific sites um, on the outskirts generally of the city where people would just go on a Saturday to sort of hang out and, and just be involved in this kind of. Um, this movement, you know, and it, of course, the movement also has the because of all the lack of everything I've described, the lack of uh, kind of traditional uh, politicization, first of all, but also left politicization, but also the lack of a kind of uh, the material and historical conditions that you see in these other sectors. There was a lot of concern on the part of the classical left that there were these right wing elements like within the movement, which is certainly true to some extent. Um, but that the, the politics were a little bit wrong, <laughs> like somehow they're not leftist in the sense that we recognize that, you know, that term. Uh, the demands they were making were like maybe like not the right demands according to the official left, uh, vision of the world. Right. And that's what's sort of, sort of interesting. And I thought that, well, maybe that would be like, the, the, sh- the shape of one type of struggle in the future would be these kind of very ambiguous movements, which uh, are mobilizing workers who aren't classically mobilized. And you don't have a kind of deep immersion within kind of leftist um, struggle, le- leftist oriented kind of demands that struggles are supposed to make. You know what I mean? Like um, yeah. something like that.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Automation Ruse, part one. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is joined by Jason Smith, author of Smart Machines and Service Work. With 85% of U.S. jobs now classed in the service sector, where concepts like productivity are hard if not impossible to measure, can automation even be a factor when we consider such work? In our current crisis of stagnation, Jason Smith argues that it can't.
1: So one of the things that you're drawing out in your text is how People in the public sector, like teachers, they there is something like, for teachers, there is something like being in the factory where they have a place where they go and they're mm-hmm. with the teachers and they can coordinate. But a lot of people who are moving in the Sheila Jean movement, and this is representative in some ways of what you're calling the servant economy, are individual people who go somewhere to work where they are taking care of someone, they're doing care work, or they're going and they are doing you know, isolated um, carpentry work or something where it's like, they're not, they don't have a place like the factory or the school. Mm -hmm. They can coordinate with other people. Can you say a little bit more about what that atomization looks like and what its relationship is to automation?
2: Yeah, that's an important part of the book. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, teachers are in a funny, in some sense, a very exceptional situation because they're relatively labor intensive job, right? I mean, there's very little kind of like Capital in in uh, any kind of like broad sense of the term that's being mobilized through uh, public school teaching or through teaching in general, um, in the way that factories you have these kind of masses of capital that have to be to be valorized in the labor process, right? And so, um, so teachers are in a funny position because you have these these huge workplaces where you have you know tens of thousands of people that are maybe not working in the same building, you know, like at each individual elementary school, but they're work in the same school district and so on and so forth. Um, whereas, as you say, in the, in the, the servant economy, and I use that term, um, in a couple different ways, but one of the important aspects of this notion of a service economy is that since basically almost all job growth is taking place in incredibly low skill, I mean, you know, low skill, quote unquote, low wage positions, oftentimes things like, like, um, home nurses aides or, or a kind of, um, home healthcare aid or teachers aid and that sort of thing.
1: I've had one of those jobs. Yeah,
2: well, then maybe you can you can you maybe you can tell me if the idea that I uh, I'm proposing makes sense. I mean, the, the general trend would be this. Think about like automobile manufacturing. You know, in 1910, 1905, something like that. There's like there's like hundreds of automobile manufacturers all across the U.S. Right, and it's it's largely a craft tradition still. You know, in terms of the way it's produced, you have these people um, with like highly skilled workers that are producing you know machinery and that sort of thing. And then by, I don't know, let's say, certainly by after the post war period, you know, post World War II period, you have like two, three companies, um, everything taking place in, you know, like Detroit primarily, or maybe like, you know, Ohio and things like that. And you have these massive, massive workplaces where there's like thousands and thousands of people all in one spot mobilizing these huge, you know, masses of capital, right? And any work stoppage is going to, produce a kind of uh, buckling in a particular industry, but probably beyond that particular industry. And that's not the case with the servant economy, where you have people doing, you know, labor-intensive jobs in smaller and smaller workplaces. Uh, And workplaces, because they're labor-intensive, workplaces in which there's very little capital that's being mobilized, and therefore very little capital that can be, you know, stopped or arrested since, you know, like capital is value in motion then uh, the kind of arresting of that motion would be a kind of intervention within the kind of, you know, valorization process. To some extent, I'm thinking about the kind of argument that Kim Moody makes uh, in a bunch of places. He makes the same argument over and over again. Um, But he makes these claims that, you know, what we're seeing is exactly the opposite. We're seeing the industrialization, if you like, of all these different sectors And what industrialization means is precisely that you have the concentration of workers in larger and larger workplaces. There's more and more capital intensity. And therefore, the types of organizing and types of activity that those workers, interventions those workers can make, will resemble something like the late 1930s in in, uh, sit-down strikes or whatever. So on some level, I'm, I'm kind of polemically bending the stick the other way and saying, no, in fact, what we see is something else. We see people in smaller workplaces with fewer workers Less capital to mobilize, and um, and that poses like real obstacles to not to necessarily class struggle, but to returning to a model of class struggle, which which is really the the great you know glory days of American. Class struggle. It's the late 1930s sit-down strikes, and uh, and to some extent, you know, in an earlier version of my argument, which I'm, I'm going to come back to at some other point in the near future, because I is you know James Boggs played a big role in an earlier version of my. That's my, what I wanted
1: to ask you about soon. No, but go ahead. Yeah,
2: But just, it, I you know Boggs is, is it gives this incredible account of the the sit-down strikes in the 30s, but also the kind of wildcat strikes like throughout the war period, wartime period, you know, which which is something that we never know. one. I mean, maybe historians do talk about this. I don't know. Um, but it's a like great, like, wonderful, sort of, you know, um, glorious period in the history of American, uh, labor movement and, and, and class struggle in the U.S. is the, or the, um, the, the wildcat strikes throughout the war and then after the war as well, up into the really early fifties. This is a period that Boggs himself, though, recognizes in 62 when he writes the American Revolution. That moment has sort of been, or that parenthesis has been closed. And that moment of, of, you know, the union, as he calls it, with a big U, by the, by, which he means the CIO, that's all dead. And on some level, a kind of clear-eyed, sober perspective has to sort of reckon with the fact that the union is 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 gone.
1: And it's not only gone; it's specifically recuperated back into capitalism.
2: Right? Exactly.
3: Planned manufactured senseless. It's <laughs> automatic. It's time for our
0: final break. This is Automatic Society, another from Sunvolt. This one off of the 2006 release, The Search. More on the automation ruse when Interchange returns on WFHB.
3: It's automatic.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. For our final segment, Brady Heberlin and Jason Smith begin with the problem of organizing workers outside of the institution of the labor union, and then the two confront the problem of there simply not being any work. Can it be a kind of liberation, or is it a looming catastrophe?
1: Boggs doesn't define the terrain of labor organizing outside of unions. And in your book, you're also kind of careful not to prescribe a route for, for organizing yeah. um, organizing labor outside of unions. But I wanted to ask if you would speculate on what forms of labor organizing might take, um, both with the rise of the servant economy and with the sober recognition that unions are at this point easy to recuperate back into right. capitalism.
2: Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's a very, very important point. And it's certainly in Boggs's case, the, the, he has this whole very elaborate uh, and brilliant account of the role that automation plays in regaining control over the workplace. And he understands that not simply as transforming the labor process, the production process itself, but also the integration of the union. As a kind of moment within the management of the, the shop floor. And, um, that's a, you know, that's 1955 is really the date that he sort of sees at the turning point. You know, I think there are, there are like millions of people that would have a better account of where, what new types of organizing might take place within, uh, the broader kind of, uh, class struggle in the U.S. The one thing I would say or that I would look for is, you know, so there's a negative prescription of sorts, which is to say that, please do not fantasize about 1937, you know, or 1938. Um, that is going to be uh, a kind of demoralizing <laughs> sort of defeat. Instead, the question is to sort of, in some sense, think about new struggles that are emerging spontaneously and sort of throwing oneself in some sense into those Defined that new form of struggle and what that means to me. And that's why the, the GD is so interesting to me on some level because they're clearly locked out of the workplace, right? This, the kind of shop floor or kind of workplace struggles. And yet they're clearly, I mean, these are, these are workers precisely. And sometimes they're self-employed. It's that which causes complications maybe for some people in terms of thinking about who's a worker and who's not, what a wage is, what, what isn't a wage and so on and so forth. But I would say that the fundamental. Tendency would be a kind of increasing erosion of the boundary between struggles in the street, mass movements, and workplace struggles. I think that is what I would imagine would be more likely: is that it will be less and less obvious um, where the site of struggle is, right? Because it's a very classical idea, you know, is that you have the strike in the workplace and you have the riot in the streets or you have the, the strike in the workplace and the insurrection in the streets or what have you, right? And I think that that distinction is one that will be increasingly compromised without it being a I mean, without it simply being the case that the strike is dead, right? I don't think that's the case at all. Certainly with, with the teacher strikes, they're kind of these massive and particularly like, I mean, even though the, the actual gains aren't always spectacular, you see the power of the unions versus what they're able to achieve. It's not always, like, you know, satisfying, I guess, in some sense. Um, But there is a real power that I saw. For example, the UTLA uh, in in L.A., um, uh, there was a strike a couple years ago. And um, being able to see that in person, like, wow, this is, like, a massive strike. And this is not, like, a small workplace struggle. This is a big socially relevant struggle, you know? And one of the things that, um, one last point on this too, and this is something that Annie McClanahan, uh, who's a kind of brilliant writer on automation, and particularly the kind of return of, of gig work and uh, piecework in the contemporary economy, she's written all these totally brilliant things and she's working on that, kind of in, in a way that's sort of complementary to some of the things I try to talk about in the servant economy chapter. She noted too, that one of the things that's really interesting about the teachers unions in particular is, and this is certainly the case in LA, is that the demands they're making tend to, or increasingly extend beyond workplace demands, you know, wages or working conditions, that sort of thing, and and, and sort of branch out into kind of social reproduction struggles uh, more broadly. And I think that's actually really interesting and kind of maybe unique to teachers and the kind of special place they have in the social division of labor, as I try to describe it. Yeah. but I think that's important too, as a, as a scenario. But I, the key is that I, I don't think it's the strike is dead by any means, nor do I think workplace struggles are dead. But I do think that the the clear distinction between the two, which which in t- all, the entirety of leftist, you know, political and whatever like organizational thought depends on the difference between political parties and and trade unions and so on and so forth. All that is going to be more uh, complicated going forward, I think.
1: And if anything, it seems like this aspect of social reproduction is is part of what is lending a kind of opacity or a kind of indeterminability to many of these movements. And I'm thinking, for example, of the Yellow Vest movement in France, Mm. building a house on the roundabout and being able to pass out food, but also something like the migrant caravan from Honduras, Guatemala, and Salvador, which was fundamentally about social reproduction. Um, and also kind of it folded it into what it meant to organize and to move together. It was sort of this collective care, et cetera. Right. So I, I wonder, um, I wonder if you see that aspect of gendered work, which you talk about in mm-hmm. your a little bit uh, coming up in terms of the way people are mobilizing. To me, it seems like there's this aspect of social reproduction that I can't quite put my finger on, but do you, right. see, do you see a future uh, sort of immediately available in, organizing around the things that are traditionally considered women's work?
2: I don't know if I, what I see, I, mean, I certainly would be not surprised for that to be the case, right? I mean, I, I do think that um, much of what I, I, I you know, I, my sense of <laughs> struggles right now are very, um, are very confused um, in part because I, I still haven't reckoned with what took place, for example, uh, in, in late May and early June in the U S yeah. um, particularly these kind of, I mean, really, really like massive, massive uh, movements, um, but also the recuperation of that movement um, uh, by the broad kind of liberal class or whatever, or just like liberals in general. Right. I mean, it's really uh, disturbing almost in terms of how that took place and you see it well, anyway, it's it, that, that's so that's so, so. I look at that as kind of like, well, that like what happened there, and then I see things like, of course, you know, the kind of the right, of course, has been able to organize itself and um and to act uh, in kind of dramatic and sort of quasi uh, insurrectionary ways um, recently. And how to square that with these 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 sort of larger questions about what's happening in the economy itself and the way that these changes in class composition and in class struggle, how those relate to broader struggles is a, is a more difficult question for me.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Automation Ruse, Part 1. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is joined by Jason Smith, author of Smart Machines and Service Work. With 85% of U.S. jobs now classed in the service sector, where concepts like productivity are hard if not impossible to measure... Can automation even be a factor when we consider such work? In our current crisis of stagnation, Jason Smith argues that it can't.
2: I, I, I would assume that both what I mentioned, that you know, Annie McClanahan's point about um, the teacher unions sort of broadening their demands into these larger social reproduction struggle-type questions, and the kinds of examples that you give, even back at the Occupy Movement. I mean, of course, there was this kind of strange desire to not only um, hold space and take on, you know, the Oakland Police Department or whatever it is, New York City Police Department, but there was also this this real investment in kind of reproduction, social reproduction, in some kind of really microscopic level, right, in terms of the camps and figuring out how to organize that in a kind of non-capitalist way. Um, I think that was really, really an important experiment. And I mean, in some sense they were like catastrophic. I mean, you know, like, I mean, at least the contradictions, which are broader social contradictions reemerged within that space, you know, particularly dealing with gender, but also race and and so on and so forth.
1: As they did this summer too. I think, I think there were so many contradictions that just uh, came, came full circle or sort of uh, appeared during the movement for black lives this summer, the black lives matter protests.
2: Specifically around uh, race or what, what, what exactly are you thinking about? Like, I
1: mean, I think I think you know, in in Bloomington, for example, um, we had protests here where there was a black man who had been murdered after um, just like down down the street from one of the mm-hmm. occupations. And when his family showed up to protest with us, they led like an all lives matter chant. And it was really hard for oh, yeah. liberals to contend with the fact that here were some black organizers or, you know, the family of somebody who had been murdered who were leaving an all, leaving an all lives matter chant. Yeah. I think that was really valuable because it, it actually put forward a position where it was, they were not saying it the way the right says it. They were saying yeah. it as in our futures are entangled, which I think is one of the most noble ways to move right. you know, in multiracial coalitions or across different sectors of the economy etc is is you know funnily this sort of all lives matter position but not like uh not to the detriment of whatever sectors or people are being harmed more right.
2: yeah i think that's i think it's it's really essential that if if movements are are serious that they produce those kind that the pressures of the movements will produce those internal dynamics which can be contradictions that you know on some level It's like that whole, uh, excuse my, my reference to Mao, but there's that whole idea of the antagonistic and non-antagonistic contradictions, right? You could, there's certain contradictions that can be resolved through some kind of process, organizational process or what have you. And then some of them, they can't. And they, they, they sort of polarize into this kind of like, you know, uh, enmity almost, um, or certainly an antagonism, you know, let us say something that can't be resolved formally. That's what mass movements are. And so, I mean, if they're real mass movements, that's what happens. Um, but, um, they have to work themselves out in a kind of way that's, um, kind of violent sometimes, certainly messy and unsatisf- unsatisfying. Oftentimes it produces splits. And sometimes those splits can just reproduce existing, you know, segmentations in the class, you know, the great drama was less the contradictions and splits, uh, and more the recuperation, which is a term I hate, but I, I have to say that is the term that seems apt. For in some sense that it's the almost like the smothering of the movement through its embrace you know, by, by celebrities, by liberals, by elite institutions, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, sort of elite private schools sort of incorporate, you know, all this uh, a kind of rhetoric around Black Lives Matter um, that. Makes it something that it's not, or maybe it is. I don't know. Like, um, but I think that's something that I, I've been trying to think about and reckon with.
1: So, on one hand, we've we've spoken about um, some of the issues with unions and the mm-hmm. way labor organizing looks different when people are atomized and isolated from each other. But there's this whole other aspect of work, you know, work in the current economy, which is worklessness or the crisis of yeah. worklessness and what you refer to as an exodus. So right. there's notable exodus, especially on the part of men from the economy. Can we imagine that exodus itself as being potentially liberatory? You know, there are all these complicated gender dynamics where yeah. if men exit the economy, who's caring for them? Right. If they claim disability, who's caring for them? But is there a liberatory potential in this exodus from working?
2: I think that I sort of um, am skeptical about it in the book, at least I, I touch on it in quickly. And I think that the gender dynamic um, and the kind of contradiction, the kind of gender contradiction is probably exacerbated more than anything by this kind of decline in the so-called uh, labor participation rate um, among men in particular. You know, there's a kind of like, there's a very strong right-wing sort of account of this decline in labor force participation rate. And of course, the right-wing version is that, of course, men who don't work don't produce income for their families and therefore are going to be under the thumb of women who actually do, uh, you know, earn income. And therefore, this is going to lead to some kind of catastrophic collapse of the patriarchal family and that sort of thing. And of course, I, I, that's not the concern that um, I would have. I think even in terms of the data that's available, there's no indication that men that are sort of dropping out of the workforce meaning they're not only not employed, they're not unemployed, are they, according to the way data is collected, there's no indication that they're assuming responsibility for you know, the tasks that um, typically, historically, uh, have been thought of as you know, women's work or have been performed by women. That doesn't surprise me, I guess is what I would say. Like, um, so liberatory, I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, I think it's, um, in some sense, it indicates that work is not only not a, um, something that's sort of psychically invested in, but it's also that, that the compulsion to work is somehow kind of rattled by that, right? I mean, because clearly their compulsion to work is very, very simple in capitalist societies. If you don't have income, you don't have access to the, the goods produced by society, and therefore you don't have a house to live in and, and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, there's this idea that something is happening in a kind of invisible layer of society in which people are, are no longer forced to work, even though, of course, they are forced to work. And I don't know if that's liberatory per se, but there is something um, symptomatic there that I thought was interesting to, to underline. I think it's probably um, a kind of catastrophic situation. <laughs>
3: Die by their own hand Punish the push headlong For a tone Friends and followers Devoted to
0: living That's our show. We'll close with a final Song from Sunvolt. This is Medicine Hat from the 1998 Release Wide Swing
3: Tremolo. Unweary cogs with no cadence Of virtue there will be Right and will be wrong Drop of a Just like that the is done. What I give for that had to be medicine. The time is now to be on. on. Our thanks to
0: Jason Smith, whose new book is Smart Machines and Service Work: Automation in an Age of Stagnation, published in December last year by Reaction Books. Part two of the Automation Ruse will feature a conversation with Aaron Beninov about his new book, Automation and the Future of Work, published by Verso. I'm Doug Storm, I produce Interchange. Today's interview was conducted by Brady Heberlin. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for
3: listening.